Welcome to Keith Knight Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Many people are familiar with the concept that war is the health of the state, meaning that in a time of war, governments are able to get away with things they otherwise wouldn't in peacetime because there's an external enemy that the domestic population is so afraid of, they're much more willing to give up money, give up their rights than they otherwise would be. Anyone who dissents is commonly seen as working with the enemy, or at least being sympathetic to that enemy. Today I want to make the case that the inverse is also true. The state is the health of war, meaning that in many, many cases, wars are much more likely to occur as a causal result of there being a state which has things like a central bank, the ability to print money, the ability to initiate taxes, force people to fund things against their will, the recognized right to conscript in many countries. This is forcing people to perform labor against their will under the worst conditions. Compulsory education, meaning that uh, when the state has control over the minds of people when they're in very vulnerable situations, ages 5 to 18. The people that grow up under this society tend to see the state at, uh, through a much more favorable light than any other institution in society. Just as if the Catholic Church mandated people attend school, people might allow the Catholic Church to get away with things they otherwise wouldn't be able to. And finally, the legal double standard that allows things like murder to go unaddressed because they're done under the guise of foreign policy. I want to use a number of examples to make this case. First, I want to address an incident that happened on June 12th of 2016. A man named Omar Mateen in Orlando, Florida, went into the Pulse nightclub and murdered 49 people, injured 53 people, and while he held the survivors hostage, he called 911 in order to uh, start these hostage negotiations, or at least make it very clear why uh, he was doing this. Here are some excerpts from Omar Mateen's 911 call. You have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They are killing a lot of innocent people. What am I to do here when my people are getting killed over there? You get what I'm saying? You need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. They need to stop the U.S. airstrikes, okay? Tell the U.S. government to stop the bombing. They are killing too many children. They are killing too many women. Okay? I feel the pain of the people getting killed in Syria and Iraq and all over the Muslim redacted. They need to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. The U.S. is collaborating with Russia and they are killing innocent women and children. Okay? Yo, the airstrike that killed Abu Wahid a few weeks ago, that's what triggered it. Okay? They should have not bombed and killed Abu Wahid. The airstrikes need to stop and stop collaborating with Russia, okay? A lot of innocent women and children are getting killed in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, okay? Tell the fucking, the airstrikes need to stop. Now you feel. Now you feel how it is. Now you feel how it is. Then President Barack Obama came out four days later to address the nation. This is a speech you can find on whitehouse.gov. And he said the following. This was an attack on the LGBT community. Americans were targeted because we're a country that has learned to welcome everyone, no matter who you are or who you love, and hatred towards people because of sexual orientation, regardless of where it comes from, is a betrayal of what's best in us. So something that was clearly motivated as blowback terrorism from the uh, result of governments murdering civilians in other countries. 
Barack Obama saw this as a hate against homosexuals. So let's go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Donald Trump, then presidential candidate, came out June 13th, the day after. Here's what he said. This is a very dark moment in America's history. A radical Islamic terrorist targeted the nightclub not only because he wanted to kill Americans, but in order to execute gay and lesbian citizens because of their sexual orientation. It's a strike at the heart and soul of who we are as a nation. It's an assault on the ability of free people to live their lives, love who they want, and express their identity. A lot of people were not familiar with Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. If you go to the Council on Foreign Relations website, you can actually find a map of this year, 2016, where this took place, and you can see that the United States government dropped 12,192 bombs on Syria, 12,095 bombs on Iraq, 1,337 bombs on Afghanistan. An organization founded by Glenn Greenwald, The Intercept, did some research on these bombings and drone strikes. The uh, summaries conclude, During one five-month period of the operation, according to the documents, nearly 90% of the people killed in airstrikes were not the intended targets. In Yemen and Somalia, where the U.S. has far more limited intelligence capabilities to confirm the people killed are the intended targets, the equivalent ratios may be much worse. Many people will say, well, Barack Obama, he had become president uh, very shortly, you know, after he started running when he just became senator, he was in over his head, and Trump's a clown, so th these aren't real presidents in the genuine sense. The problem is this scam has been going on for two decades in America. We can go back to September 20th of 2001, President George W. Bush addressed Congress and said the following. Americans are asking, why do they hate us? They hate what they see in this chamber, a democratically elected government. Their leaders are self-appointed. They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech, our freedom to vote and assemble and disagree with each other. Here are Osama bin Laden's actual words, published in a book titled Al-Qaeda in its own words published by Harvard University. Section is titled Tactical Recommendations. Bin Laden says, Then the fighters realized that the gang in the White House could not see things clearly, and that their leader, that idiot they obey, was claiming that we envied their lifestyle, when the truth which this pharaoh would like to hide is that we are attacking them because of their injustice toward the Muslim world and especially Palestine and Iraq, as well as their occupation of the land of the two sanctuaries. When the fighters saw this, they decided to come out of the shadows and take the fight into their territory, into their homes. And herein lies the importance of libertarianism. We are going to be in a continuous back and forth of fake divides. Black versus white, man versus woman, rich versus poor, Muslim versus non-Muslim, Russia versus America, China versus America. The only justifiable divide in society that we should tolerate are those who achieve their ends by initiating fraud and violence against peaceful people and those who achieve their ends through peaceful trade and voluntary cooperation. Even the invasion of Afghanistan after September 11, 2001 was not necessary, but because the state is the health of war, the politicians who got us in there 
knew they weren't going to have to pay the price. In fact, it would actually win them a lot of friends along with uh, defense contractors. And none of them were afraid that, they oh, they might go to jail if they kill any civilians or wage an unjust war. That is another example of how the state is the health of war. The Guardian, October 14, 2001. Bush rejects Taliban offer to hand bin Laden over. The president said the bombing would not stop unless the ruling Taliban turn bin Laden over, turn his cohorts over, turn any hostages they hold over. He added, no need to discuss innocence or guilt. We know he's guilty. Haji Abdul Kabir, the third most powerful figure in the ruling Taliban regime, told reporters that the Taliban would require evidence that bin Laden was behind the September 11th terrorist attacks in the U.S., but added, we would be ready to hand him over to a third country. If the Taliban is given evidence that Osama bin Laden is involved and the bombing campaign stopped, we would be ready to hand him over to a third country, Mr. Kabir added. Along with the invasion of Iraq, another example of how uh, the state is the health of war, uh, th this invasion was uh, based but primarily on lies. George W. Bush in his 2003 State of the Union address said, The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. This was refuted in an article titled What I Didn't Find in Africa by Joe Wilson, who was the alleged source of this uranium purchase. He is the husband of Valerie Plame. Vice President Dick Cheney went on Meet the Press December 9, 2001, and was referring to Muhammad Atta, the infamous uh, September 11th hijacker, saying, It's been pretty well confirmed that he, Atta, did go to Prague, and he did meet with a senior official of the Iraqi intelligence service. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld was interviewed by George Stephanopoulos on ABC News March of 2003, saying, we know where they are, Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. They're in the area around Tikrit and Baghdad, and east, west, south, and north somewhat. When it comes to the invasion of Syria, here is another lie that the war on terror has something to do with fighting against al-Qaeda. It actually involves uh, allying with al-Qaeda in a uh, number of instances. Here is Jake Sullivan, the current National Security Advisor for President Joe Biden, in a email sent to Hillary Clinton on February 12th, 2012, Sullivan says, See last item, AQ is on our side in Syria. Otherwise, things have basically turned out as expected. This is high-level officials knowing for a fact that the U.S. is on the side of al-Qaeda in Syria for the sake of taking down the Bashar al-Assad regime, which Obama publicly came out and said Assad can uh, no longer uh, be the uh, prime minister of Syria. He's an illegitimate ruler. When it comes to Libya, two headlines from the New York Times will do. First one from 2011 says, U.S. tactics in Libya may be a model for other efforts. A couple years later, 2015, New York Times says, ISIS's grip on Libyan city gives it a fallback option. So the foreign policy to take out a terrible dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, ended with the Islamic State controlling large portions of Libya. Uh, this is the organization they were allying with in 
Syria. These wars are to the point where they are so unjustifiable. Major neoconservative Max Boot published an article in Foreign Affairs to his credit titled, What Neocons Got Wrong and How the Iraq War Taught Me About the Limits of American Power. Boot says, March 10th, 2023. Regime change obviously did not work out as intended. The occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq were in fact fiascos that exacted a high price in both blood and treasure for both the United States and, even more, of course, the countries it invaded. States constantly provoking wars is also nothing new. AJP Taylor wrote a book titled Origins of the Second World War in which he summarizes how the First World War began, saying, The assassination of Franz Ferdinand provoked Austria-Hungary to declare war on Serbia. The Russian mobilization in support of Serbia provoked Germany to declare war on Russia and France, Russia's ally. The German refusal to respect Belgium neutrality provoked Great Britain to declare war on Germany. And just like that, a few heads of state are able to get millions of human beings killed. Millions of men conscripted to get their limbs blown off and fight unnecessary wars for their regimes. And these people who support this institution, the state, have the gall to tell us that we are the greedy ones for advocating voluntary exchanges between consenting adults. Listen to how Henry Asquith, the Prime Minister of Britain at the time, justified this declaration of war, knowing what costs are on the other end of this, knowing that hundreds of thousands of British men will be conscripted, get their limbs blown off, kids are going to grow up without parents, civilians are going to die. Here is the justification for bearing such a cost. Asquith says, Our ambassador at Berlin received his passports at 7 o'clock last evening, and since 11 o'clock last night, a state of war has existed between Germany and ourselves. We have received from our minister at Brussels the following telegram. I have just received from Minister of Foreign Affairs, that is the Belgium Foreign Minister of Affairs, a note which the following is a literal translation. Belgium government regret to have to inform His Majesty's government that this morning armed forces of Germany penetrated into Belgium territory in violation of engagements assumed by a treaty. The treaty they are referring to is a treaty that politicians in 1839 made on behalf of all future members of the United Kingdom that they would have to go to war with a country if that country violated Belgium neutrality. When it comes to America's entrance into the First World War, we have a uh, number of incidences that we can refer to. The primary one is the sinking of the Lusitania. This was off the coast of Ireland. We have a very telling publication this is a book published by Yale University. A guy named Charles Seymour, the president of Yale University, gathered the papers of who Woodrow Wilson referred to as his right-hand man and his second personality, Colonel Edward House. In the intimate papers of Colonel House, Seymour publishes the following. On the morning of May 7th, House and Gray, this is Sir Edward Gray, the foreign minister for Britain, drove out to Kew. We spoke of the probability of an ocean liner being sunk, recorded House, and I told him, if this were done, a flame of indignation would sweep across America, which would in itself probably carry us into the war. An hour later, 
house was with King George in Buckingham Palace. We fell to talking, strangely enough, the colonel wrote that night, of the probability of Germany sinking a transatlantic liner. He said, suppose they, the Germans, should sink the Lusitania with American passengers on board. That is a coincidence for the coincidental theorists. That is an intentional provocation and attempt to justify entrance into a war to the same people of the world. The Imperial German Embassy actually was putting out ads in American newspapers in 1915 to warn against uh, the, the U.S. using these ships to transfer weapons from America to aid the British. Document says, Notice, travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of their allies are liable to destruction in those waters and that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. So when the Lusitania was sunk and Americans died, we might think that, okay, government is legitimate because there's a social contract. They technically get to put us in jail if we don't pay taxes, but in exchange they keep us safe. So if government doesn't keep us safe, then they don't hold up their end of the social contract, then we might predict that politicians would go to jail or we no longer have to chip in and pay taxes. But the opposite is true because the state is the health of war. Whenever people's rights are violated, government doesn't so much as apologize. They, of course, don't let you opt out of participating in regulations or taxations. Um, people frequently think that the Lusitania was attacked and then America went to war. Actually, that didn't happen. Woodrow Wilson ran on the concept that he kept us out of war because America was a much more isolationist country at the time. It wasn't until April 2nd, 1917, where Woodrow Wilson declared war on Germany, saying, The world must be made safe for democracy. Its peace must be planted upon the tested foundations of political liberty. We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. We seek no indemnities for ourselves, no material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. We shall be satisfied when those rights have been made as secure as the faith and the freedom of nations can make them. The concept that they are sacrifices we shall freely make did not last very long. The Selective Service Act of 1917 was implemented by Woodrow Wilson. This conscripted men ages 18 to 45. So of the 4.8 million uh, men who were in the war, 2.8 million of them were conscripted. Forced labor under the worst conditions. I'm very glad that people are against forced cotton picking. Forced cotton picking is absolutely terrible. Whipping against someone's will is absolutely terrible. What I would ask people to do is take that concept of forced labor being wrong and continue to apply it to the state. A man named uh, George Creel wrote a book called How We Advertised America. He was the chairman of the Committee on Public Information during the First World War. 
In his book, he actually talks about the propaganda methods that were used to get people on board with conscription. Now, even though it was coerced, you still have to have a propaganda campaign to stop people from constantly resisting. This included 756,700 leaflets, along with 75,000 speakers who were promoting these ideas, he says. The next publication was a selective service register, a regular newspaper with one side of the sheet given over entirely to questions and answers, specific instructions and general appeals. The other side of a striking poster blazoning the fundamental facts of registration. Newspapers and individuals, after reading or copying the stories, were then able to paste or hang up the sheet in such a manner as to let the poster carry its message to every passer-by. The people of the United States do understand, and the proof of it lies in the fact that the mothers of the country have given their sons to the selective service law without question that every liberty loan has been oversubscribed and that no request of government has ever lacked complete response. So he explicitly lies and says that their sons were given as if parents, like, own their children as property. And, of course, if they were doing it voluntarily, they wouldn't need to coerce them. But the good news is that in order for this nonsense, this evil psychopathy, to survive, they do need propaganda, and that's why us countering the propaganda is so vitally important. So what was the downside of this First World War to preserve democracy? Well, uh, in Russia... It uh, ended with 1.8 million deaths. Germany suffered 2 million deaths. The French, 1.375 million deaths. The Habsburg Empire, that's Austria-Hungary, 1.1 million deaths. The United Kingdom and its colonies, 1.1 million deaths. Italy, 460,000 deaths. And America, who was the last to enter the war, suffered 116,000 deaths. And the people who advocate this institution with a straight face, say that we are dangerous for advocating voluntary exchanges between consenting adults while they justify the most evil atrocities that have ever occurred. This brings us to the Second World War, which is commonly referred to as the Good War, the necessary war to take on National Socialism and stop its spread. It's commonly seen that Neville Chamberlain was a coward who was focused on just appeasement, but it was actually Neville Chamberlain who declared war September 3rd, 1939, on behalf of the British Empire. He said, This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. A few politicians had the power to coerce millions of strangers into doing something against their will, fighting under the most brutal conditions, didn't cost him a dime, and he didn't have to uh, face any uh, time in prison if any unjustified actions took place. A book was written by a very pro-Churchill historian named Martin Gilbert titled Churchill, A Life. In it, he references a meeting uh, on May 4th between Lord Londonderry and Winston Churchill. Londonderry said, I should like to get out of your mind what appears to be a strong anti-German obsession. 
And herein lies Churchill's response, which gets to the heart of what wars really are between politicians. Churchill says, British policy for 400 years has been to oppose the strongest power in Europe by weaving together a combination of other countries strong enough to face the bully. Sometimes it is Spain, sometimes the French monarchy, sometimes the French empire, sometimes Germany. I have no doubt who it is now, but if France set up to claim overlordship of Europe, I should equally endeavor to oppose them. It is thus through the centuries we have kept our liberties and maintained our life and power. So not if our country is under attack, but if there is another power in Europe that has more control and influence than they do. Uh, going back to the origins of Churchill's uh, entrance into politics, he was actually the first Lord Admiralty in the First World War and on August 12th, 1914, initiated a blockade around Germany, which got hundreds of thousands of German civilians murdered, holding them responsible for the atrocities of German soldiers and Kaiser Wilhelm, who ended up uh, stepping off the throne and spending the rest of his life peacefully in the Netherlands and uh, later died of natural causes. But the state is the health of war and they have no problem uh, killing civilians in order to uh, stop someone from becoming more powerful than they are. Martin Gilbert wrote a book titled The First World War, A Complete History, and estimates that the total civilian death toll as a cause or result of Winston Churchill's blockade when he was first Lord of the Admiralty was 762,106. This is citation 119 in his book. He gets into significant detail as to how he arrives at this number. The Churchill myth is one of the big ones that gets people to say, well, we got to go to war in Syria or Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan or go to war with China over Taiwan or go to war with Russia over Ukraine. I mean, what would Winston Churchill do? He would stand strong. We don't want to be like Neville Chamberlain. Meanwhile, of course, it was Neville Chamberlain who declared war in the first place. But it's important to know that Churchill committed an atrocity against the Allies that was equal in size to those who died at Pearl Harbor. This is referred to as Operation Catapult, where Churchill ordered the shooting and bombing of uh, French servicemen off the coast of Algeria, leading to the death of 1,297 French servicemen. This took place in the summer of 1940. Also, it was Winston Churchill in Britain who initiated the bombing of civilians 19, uh, May 15th of 1940, and the German response came September 6th, 1940. This actually came uh, as an idea from a physicist who was part of uh, the British government, a guy named Frederick Lindemann. The summary of what Lindemann gave to Churchill was published in a book by C.P. Snow, a science advisor to the uh, war government. He wrote a book titled Science and Government. Here is an excerpt. Uh, from this uh, from this book. The paper laid down a strategic policy. The bombing must be directed especially against German working-class houses. Middle-class houses have too much space around them and so are bound to waste bombs. The paper claimed that given a total concentration of effort on the production and use of bombing aircraft, it would be possible in all the larger towns of Germany, that is, those with more than 50,000 inhabitants, to destroy 50 percent of all houses. 
J.M. Spate wrote a book titled Bombing Vindicated. He was the principal secretary for the Air Ministry. In his book, Bombing Vindicated, a survey of recent developments by this leading authority on air warfare in 1944, Spate says, Because we were doubtful about the psychological effect of propagandist distortion of the truth that it was we who started the strategic bombing offensive, we have shrunk from giving our great decision of May 11, 1940, the publicity which it deserves. It was a splendid decision. It was as heroic, as self-sacrificing, as Russia's decision to adopt her policy of scorched earth. They used this bombing campaign against civilians for the uh, crimes that uh, Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist military were responsible for, they punished the civilians knowing that uh, they wouldn't have to face any charges. They didn't have to bear the cost. These atrocities took place in Dresden, Leipzig, Hamburg, Berlin, Cologne. And it's also important to note that the vast majority of people in these uh, conflicts are actual conscripts. So again... Far from governments being our representatives, if they really represented us, they would deal with us on a mutually beneficial, voluntary basis, just like every other organization in society. It's also important to note that Winston Churchill knew that the initial declaration of war against Germany was completely unjustified because he said April 13th of 1933 to Parliament, he gave this speech saying, many people would like to see, or would like to see, a little while ago, and I was one of them, the question of the Polish corridor adjusted. For my part, I should certainly have considered that to be one of the greatest practical objectives of European peacekeeping diplomacy. In other words, when the National Socialists invaded Poland, they went into a city called Danzig, which was more than 95% German, and had the population of Kansas. Uh, Kansas City, this is about uh, 410,000 civilians. And as an alleged favor to Poland, British declared war against the Germans. And the Poles, as a causal result of this war, suffered millions of deaths. So when a government says, hey, Taiwan, we're going to protect you, so we're going to give you a war guarantee, that is not necessarily a favor to Taiwan. Hey, Ukraine, we're going to have you be a de facto NATO member. That is not necessarily doing the people of Ukraine or Taiwan any favors. It turns out that Winston Churchill was more or less ashamed of the consequences of the Second World War. He published uh, six books after the Second World War, the first of which is titled The Gathering Storm. Quoting from the preface in March of 1948, Churchill says, The human tragedy reaches its climax in the fact that after all the exertions and sacrifices of hundreds of millions of people, and the victory of the righteous cause, we have still not found peace or security, and that we lie in the grip of even worse perils than those we have surmounted. This is in reference to the fact that after fighting a war for Polish independence, Poland was given to Joseph Stalin, along with Albania, Bulgaria, all of Czechoslovakia, not just the Sudetenland, Hungary, East Germany, Romania, and Yugoslavia. The one place that Churchill pushed back on at the Yalta conference to Stalin was, look, we declared a war for Polish independence. Millions of Poles have gotten killed. We would at least like free elections in Poland. To which Joseph Stalin responded, 
free elections like in British-occupied Egypt. And I should also clarify that it wasn't necessarily a war guarantee to Poland. It was a war guarantee against National Socialist Germany if National Socialist Germany invaded. Because if it was a war guarantee, then they would have declared war on the Soviet Union September 17, 1939, when they invaded Poland. One of the things that uh, the war hawks tend to cite as evidence that uh, you can't just sit back and do nothing and be isolationist. If that happens, we will have another Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is the reason that we had to get into this war, and it's the reason that we have to get into future wars to avoid another one of those. This is also another set of mythology, just like Pulse Nightclub, just like the Iraq War, just like the Afghan War and the World Wars. We can look at a book titled The Story of the Secret War, published by George Morgenstern. He cites the actual diary of Henry Stimson. His diaries are uh, held at Yale University. He was a Skull and Bones member. That's where you can find him. He cites his diary entry of November 25th, saying, There the president brought up entirely the relations with the Japanese. He brought up the event that they were likely, that we were likely to be attacked, perhaps as soon as next Monday. For the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning. And the question was what we should do. The question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. And since the state is the health of war, they had no problem if Americans were murdered, even though they've taken, you know, an oath to protect Americans. They know that when American rights are violated, they actually get more power and more money than they otherwise would have, whereas a private security firm would be fired. It would also face uh, competition. After Pearl Harbor, there is another diary entry we have from Secretary of War Henry Stimson. He says, When the news first came that Japan had attacked us, my first feeling was of relief that the indecision was over and that a crisis had come in a way which would unite all our people this continued to be my dominant feeling in spite of the news of catastrophes which quickly developed, for I feel that this country, united, has practically nothing to fear while the apathy and divisions stirred up by unpatriotic men have been hitherto very discouraging. It's also important to note that Hawaii wasn't a state until more than a decade later. So here we have another intentionally provoked attack. The second piece of evidence comes from uh, the New York Times in an article titled War Entry Plans Laid to Roosevelt, published January 2nd, 1972. What they're doing is going into Churchill's uh, minutes of the meetings that he had with Roosevelt. This would have been in uh, Canada in August of 1940. Churchill says, He, Roosevelt, obviously was determined that they should come in. The president had said, he would wage war, but not declare it, and that he would become more and more provocative if the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. Everything was to be done to force an incident. The president had taken this very well, and made it clear that he would look for an incident which would justify him in opening hostilities. The nail in the coffin of the Pearl Harbor advocates came in 1999 in a book titled Day of Deceit by Robert Stinnett. He uses a piece of evidence titled the McCullum 
memo. This was published by Naval Intelligence uh, official Arthur H. McCullum. And in this memo uh, from 1940, uh, McCullum says, It is not believed that the present state of political opinion in the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado, and it is barely possible that vigorous action on our part might lead the Japanese to modify their attitude. Therefore, the following course of action is suggested. A. Make an arrangement with Britain for the use of British bases in the Pacific, particularly Singapore. C. Give all possible aid to Chinese government of Shanghai, Shek. D. Send a division of long-range heavy cruisers to the Orient, Philippines, or Singapore. F. Keep the main strength of the U.S. fleet now in the Pacific in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. H. Completely embargo all U.S. trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British Empire. We know that this wasn't just some kook saying nonsense because these were actually implemented most popularly uh, the Section H, Complete Embargo of Trade with Japan. This is known as the Export Control Act of 1940. Uh, Japanese uh, property was also seized by the U.S. government. Not too long after uh, Frank Franklin Roosevelt uh, had the Gold Confiscation Act and confiscated gold from all Americans. The memo ends with McCollum saying, If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war, because war is the health of the state, and the state is the health of war. All these people have all the incentives to get people into war, to get their limbs blown off, just for political clout. This is uh, the, the reason that historical narratives are so important, because people believe the Pearl Harbor myth, Japan provoked uh, had an unprovoked attack against America because they wanted to drag us into a war. The reason it's so bad is because it allows people to justify the great atrocities, which they would never think twice about uh, justifying. You, you see someone get murdered, and you say that's a bad thing. But when we have something like Operation Meeting House, March 10th, 1945, where 279 Boeing B-29 Super Fortress heavy bombers murdered 90,000 civilians and left a million people homeless in Japan, people say, well, good. They they uh they attacked us on Pearl Harbor out of nowhere for no reason while Roosevelt uh, tried to keep us safe. Also justifies things like the mass murder of civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Lowest estimates you could find are around 129,000 deaths for those. When it comes to the Second World War deaths, this is the cost of war. Russia, the lowest number you can find is 10.7 million deaths for the Russians. Germany... 5.5 million deaths, France 212,000 deaths, UK and its colonies 491,000 deaths, Italy 301,000 deaths, and the United States 417,000. The a uh, note is made by uh, Patrick Buchanan after uh, citing these statistics, saying, "For each dead serviceman, three or four were wounded. Figures do not include millions of dead." from the influenza epidemic after World War I, or millions of civilian and military dead in nations of Eastern and Central Europe and the Balkans fought over by Hitler and Stalin in World War II. It also doesn't mention the number of soldiers 
who commit suicide as a causal result of things they uh, did and things they saw. So imagine if the voluntary sector engaged in such atrocities were already called greedy dog-eat-dog competition individualist, every-man-for-himself isolationists. But they, these are the real-world atrocities of governments, to which uh, many people say, well, uh, maybe we just need to elect different politicians. Imagine if the private sector did something like this, and the response from libertarians was, well, maybe we should have different CEOs of companies. Don't question the incentive structure. Don't question the fact that they have access to a central bank, the ability to conscript, the... Uh, double standard when it comes to committing mass murder. No, we just need to get uh, different CEOs in there. It's like saying, uh, we should give the Ku Klux Klan a ton of money and a ton of power and legal immunity and then have a really nice grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That is how ridiculous it is to say, oh yeah, I support government and uh, I'm also uh, anti-war, by the way. See, you would think that after all these atrocities, governments would say, look, the world wars were horrible, we're here to serve the people, that was then, this is now, let's make the peace. Unfortunately, they did not learn the lesson or care to appreciate it. There was a meeting on February 9th, 1990, between uh, head of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, and James Baker in Moscow. James Baker was the American Secretary of State. In this meeting, Gorbachev says the following, The President and I have made clear that we seek no unilateral advantage in this process. We understand that the need for assurances to the countries in the East. If we maintain a presence in a Germany that is part of NATO, there would be no extension of NATO's jurisdiction for forces of NATO one inch to the East. So just as the Americans did not want the Soviets to have missiles off the coast of Cuba, the Russians said we do not want the Americans to have missiles surrounding Russia so they could attack at any time. It would put them in a very vulnerable situation. So we could ask ourselves uh, empirically, has NATO, the North American Treaty Organization, moved any inches toward the east since February 9th, 1990? Unfortunately, NATO has. They have gone quite east, actually. They uh, now include countries such as the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, North Macedonia, and as of this month, Finland. It was actually known by the State Department and the Secretary of State that a war in Ukraine and potential third war, proxy war between America and Russia over Ukraine, could come about. We know this because the hero Julian Assange brought to our attention this memo that uh, was published by the then foreign ambassador, William J. Burns, who is the current head of the CIA, February 1st, 2008. The document's titled, Nyet Means Nyet, Russia's NATO Enlargement Redlines. Here is Burns' summary to Condoleezza Rice, saying, Following a muted first reaction to Ukraine's intent to seek a NATO membership action plan at the Bukharis summit, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and other senior officials have reiterated strong opposition, stressing that Russia would view further eastward expansion as a potential military threat. NATO enlargement, particularly to Ukraine, remains an emotional and neurologic issue for Russia. 
But strategic policy considerations also underlie strong opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even as some claim civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene. So instead of calling for an independent Ukraine, what happened was in 2014, Amy Klobuchar, Senator from America, Senator John McCain, Senator Chris Murphy, Senator Lindsey Graham, all went to Ukraine and supported uh, the overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych, the then president of Ukraine, who was relatively friendly to Putin. John McCain said while he was in Ukraine in 2014, what we're trying to do is bring about a very peaceful transition here that would stop the violence and give the Ukrainian people what they unfortunately have not had with different revolutions that have taken place. So Putin views it as uh, highly important that he has put pressure on Ukrainians, the price of energy, different kinds of activities. The word is very clear that he has made certain threats. Whether he would carry them through, I don't know. State is the health of war. They provoked a war knowing what uh, could happen, and all of us have to suffer as a uh, consequence of it, both the, the Ukrainian people specifically and uh, the American taxpayer, and we're at constant risk for uh, nuclear uh, exchange. On February 25th, 2014, Senator Chris Murphy was on C-SPAN and said, I think it was our role, including sanctions and threat of sanctions, that forced, in part, Yanukovych from office. So the idea that the U.S. was not participating in a coup against the Ukrainian regime. George Soros has said this on uh, statements regarding the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, Victoria Newland had a phone call with Jeffrey Pyatt where they were explicitly deciding who was going to enter the Ukrainian government after Yanukovych was kicked out. The head of Foreign Affairs magazine went on to uh, Stephen Colbert's show and talked about uh, the, the importance of uh, the West being involved in Ukraine as opposed to Russia. Lindsey Graham was actually uh, speaking in 2017 to a uh, number of fighters in uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, referred to as Don uh, the Donbass region. Lindsey Graham said to the soldiers, Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington, and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of Russian aggression. It is time for them to pay a heavier price. I wish he would take this knowledge of how to keep people safe and how to keep the peace to uh, Chicago, New York, and uh, South Phoenix, and Los Angeles. Uh, he, he knows how to keep the peace so well that uh, he travels thousands of miles away to uh, give them the uh, secret sauce. Adam Schiff said, while uh, he was uh, making the case for impeaching President Trump, over selling, uh, the, over a phone call, which was an alleged quid pro quo to sell weapons to Ukraine, Schiff says, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there, and we don't have to fight Russia here. It's very likely that uh, there could have been a, a regime change operation that was talked about uh, among members of the national security establishment against Vladimir uh, Putin. Well, we see this because there were a number of lies circulating. Once they have NATO surrounding Putin, uh, they start uh, circulating lies just like they did in Syria, Iraq, Libya, and uh, Afghanistan, which would justify an, uh, an easy intervention. 
October 19th, 2016, Hillary Clinton said on the presidential debate stage, We have 17 intelligence agencies, civilian and military, who have all concluded that these espionage attacks, these cyber attacks, come from the highest levels of the Kremlin. And they are designed to influence our election. Correction issued by the New York Times only more than one year later, June 29, 2017, saying that a White House memo article on Monday about President Trump's deflections and denials about Russia referred incorrectly to the source of an intelligence assessment that said Russia orchestrated hacking attacks during last year's presidential election. The assessment was made by four intelligence agencies, the DNI, the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA. The assessment was not approved by all 17 organizations in the American intelligence community. The lie continues, Russiagate 2.0, with Joe Biden saying the following, I don't understand why this president is unwilling to take on Putin when he's actually paying bounties to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. This is from an article on ABC News titled, Remember Those Russian Bounties for Dead U.S. Troops? President Biden said of President Trump, speaking to Kristen Welker of NBC News during the October 22nd presidential debate, so they're openly lying and provoking a possible conflict with a nuclear power, and uh, we're supposed to be worried about uh, people on Twitter or Alex Jones or the Proud Boys or uh, the America Firsters, or Patriot Front. Such a definitive statement was questionable even then. On Thursday, it became more clear that the truth of the matter is unresolved. Last fall, while Biden was a candidate, Pentagon officials told NBC News that they could not substantiate that such bounties were paid. October 21st, 2020, CNN said, Feds say Russia and Iran have interfered with presidential election. So we would have expected another Robert Mueller investigation since Russia and Iran interfered with the presidential election. Uh, still waiting on that. Politico reports Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. Dozens of former intel officials say the experts are even saying it. More than 50 former intelligence officials signed a letter casting doubt on the providence of a New York Post story on the former vice president's son. This lie was later retracted uh, by very few organizations and mostly ignored by others when it uh, turned out that Hunter Biden left his laptop at a Delaware repair shop, and that is how Rudy Giuliani got his hands on the information. The current National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, for the Biden administration, appeared at the Council on Foreign Relations this year and said the following to uh, the crowd. Foreign policy, like all policy, is about trying to protect and defend our way of life. And what we basically say in the national security strategy is that we face two strategic challenges at once on an equal plane of importance, geopolitical competition against two countries that do not share our vision of what the world should look like or for what a just society should look like. Explicitly, more or less saying that uh, we might have to go to war against China and Russia over regions like Ukraine and Taiwan. Feels no hesitancy to put tons of obligations on total strangers because the state is the health of war. Now, uh, one of the responses that people say is, well, you dumb isolationists, you can't just sit back and let things happen 
If a tyrant gets away with something in one place, they just keep going and going and going. You have to declare war. You can't be Neville Chamberlain. So we can actually empirically test this and see, are there any uh, examples throughout history where the U.S. Uh, or NATO could have had a justification for declaring war, didn't, and the results were less atrocious than they would have been had uh, they declared war? Well, right after the Second World War, three years later, the Soviets uh, murdered a number of civilians in Prague and staged a coup and uh, installed a uh, even more favorable government to the uh, Stalin regime. So, look, if, uh, but if we uh, have to go and uh, f fight against uh, Putin because he might uh, install a favorable president to him in Ukraine like Yanukovych, might have to go to war over this. They could have used that justification in 1948, didn't, and the Soviet Union came crumbling down. See, we can have a formal alliance in World War II with Joseph Stalin, but Vladimir Putin cannot be spoken to. Uh, we also see the same thing that happened in 1953 with the East German uprising, where the Soviet Union sent in the tanks against civilians when they were uh, uh, attempting to protest uh, their government and, you know, hopefully overthrow it. Important to have uh, the same principle for people all around. It's not just Americans who deserve freedom, but Eisenhower did not uh, declare war. Over this, in 1956, there was the Hungarian Revolution, where the uh, Soviets committed a number of atrocities against the civilians there. In 1964, China had Project 596, which was their testing of nuclear capabilities, and they actually exploded a nuclear bomb to which President Nixon and Henry Kissinger went over less than a decade later and shook hands with Chairman Mao. See, we can shake hands with Chairman Mao, one of the great mass-murdering communists uh, throughout history, but we can't be friends with President Xi because he's a bad guy. Formal alliance with Stalin, can't be friends with Putin. Completely ridiculous. There's, of, uh, there's uh, plenty of historical precedent for not declaring war over other countries getting more powerful or even committing atrocities because the wars that result are usually far worse than actually doing nothing. In 1968, the Soviets uh, committed a number of atrocities in Czechoslovakia against the civilian population there. Lyndon Johnson did not uh, m declare war as a result. Under President Reagan, the Soviets uh, committed atrocities in Poland against the Solidarity Movement, and Ronald Reagan did not declare war when he could have said we have to go fight and uh, defend the people of Poland. There was also an event in 1983 referred to as KAL, Korean Airlines, 007, where the Soviets shot down a plane that was going from Anchorage, Alaska to Seoul, South Korea. They said it was in their airspace. They thought that, uh, that there might have been a missile attached to it. Soviets killed a bunch of uh, Americans uh, and civilians who were on that flight, including a member of Congress, Larry McDonald, and Ronald Reagan did not declare war as a result, and within a decade, the Soviet Union came crumbling down. So the idea that we have to wage war uh, but when a government does a uh, terrible thing. See, it, it is really immoral for you to ever even walk inside the Capitol building without a permission slip if you're unhappy with your government. But if they're unhappy with another government over anything, well, they can just declare war and kill millions of people. That's totally fine. Here, we uh, the, the concept that, well, America doesn't negotiate with terrorists and we can't talk to bad guys. Roosevelt talked with Stalin. Ford and Kissinger 
uh, met with Chairman Mao. The Ronald Reagan met with a number of Mujahideen fighters to fight a proxy war in the Soviet uh, un- uh, in Afghanistan against the uh, Soviet Union. Can you believe those stupid Soviets? They got bogged down in an unwinnable war in Afghanistan. What kind of empire would uh, ever fall for such a thing? Donald Rumsfeld famously shook hands with Saddam Hussein and gave them weapons to fight against the Iranians. And worst of all, Joe Biden was happy to spend time with Mohammed bin Salman, the mass murderer of Yemen. So, after all this, NATO defenders will say, well, we have to stick with NATO and basically do what NATO says, because either we have NATO, which supports democracy, or we have terrible autocrats. But NATO has supported dictators in the past. Antonio Salazar was the dictator of Portugal for some time. Uh, In Greece, while Greece was a member of NATO, they were under the regime of colonels from the late 60s through the early 70s. Vladimir Zelensky is NATO's current boy in Ukraine, and he has confiscated property from the Eastern Orthodox Church, had a no-leave policy on February 24th. He had conscripted uh, men into fighting in the military against their will. He bombed Poland and killed two civilians in November of last year and got on the air and lied and said that it was uh, actually Vladimir Putin. He's nationalized the media and has outlawed 11 competing political parties and NATO is uh, for democracy. Now, NATO has something called Article 5 where it says the parties agree that an unarmed attack that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against all And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith individually and in concert with the other parties such as deemed necessary. So this means if one is attacked, all of them go to war in this military alliance. And they never did this to uh, the Soviet Union. They never declared war, even after all of those Soviet atrocities, because the uh, NATO countries were not attacked. The first time NATO ever declared war was after the attacks of September 11th, 2001. And after a 20-year war in Afghanistan, where tens of thousands of civilians were murdered, trillions of dollars spent, tons of American soldiers killed, Many uh, American soldiers given PTSD and end up uh, killing themselves. The Taliban took over in 11 days, and this is who uh, we are going to use to fight against nuclear Russia and nuclear China. It doesn't even occur to them, uh, and I'm not uh, referring to the politicians, general, uh, the, the voting population at large, where they say, well, the good thing about war, yeah, there's a lot of death, a lot of destruction, and uh, countries can end up with worse governments than they had previously because people are so desperate to get out of the wartime atrocities that they'll basically uh, allow any dominant personality to uh, take control. But the good thing is that it makes you really powerful. And when you go to war, you can take over a country, then you have more power and influence, and that's a good thing. Well, uh, there is another side to this pancake, no matter how flat you make it, and that is that wars can frequently destroy empires after the First World War. The Austro-Hungarian Empire that started the war and uh, declared war against Serbia no longer exists as a cause or result of uh, going into the First World War and uh, lost a million of uh, their people in the process. The French Empire 
collapsed in uh, after uh, Napoleon's uh, defeat in uh, in 1815. The German Empire after the First World War, not to mention the next Reich that failed after they started uh, taking too much land. Uh, that's an example of wars taking down empires. The British Empire in 1920 uh, was calling the shots uh, on roughly one-fifth of planet Earth. The Russian Empire uh, collapsed after the First World War when uh, they were so weak that uh, their military was so spread thin that the Bolsheviks were allowed to take over in 1917. They originally tried in 1905 and failed, but once the military had, uh, you know, conscripted people and they were getting their limbs blown off overseas for unjustified wars, were then the Bolsheviks were able to uh, easily uh, take over in 1917. Also, the Soviet Empire uh, fell as a cause or result of too much expansion. They fought a war in Afghanistan that uh, they couldn't sustain. Either they have to tax the population and allocate resources to less desirable ends and take away necessities, or they have to print more money and increase the money supply, which makes everyone's money worth less than it otherwise would be. The Japanese Empire uh, fell in 1945. Another example of how war doesn't just make you powerful, there it creates tons of enemies unnecessarily, and the Ottoman Empire also fell after the First World War. So how is it that we can have a theory that uh, governments are constantly unjustly getting their populations into war, and how is it that all of these falsehoods from with the Spanish-American War, the Gulf of Tonkin, the First, Second World War, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq... Uh, how is it that all of these governments tend to constantly engage in deceptive behavior? Well, a thesis was put forward in 1928 by Arthur Ponsonby in a book titled Falsehood in Wartime, where he lists uh, all of the uh, British, German, French, and American lies that circulated in the First World War in both uh, the press and from politicians. Ponsonby's thesis is as follows. Falsehood is a recognized an extremely useful weapon in warfare, and every country uses it quite deliberately to deceive its own people, to attract neutrals, and to mislead the enemy. The ignorant and innocent masses in each country are unaware at the time that they are being misled, and when it is all over, only here and there are the falsehoods discovered and exposed. A useful purpose can therefore be served in the interval of so-called peace by a warning which people can examine with dispassionate calm that the authorities in each country do and indeed must resort to this practice in order to first justify themselves by depicting the enemy as an undiluted criminal and secondly to inflame popular passion sufficiently to secure recruits for the continuance of the struggle they cannot afford to tell the truth. The reason that they constantly lie and they can't just say, well, the truth is, if we don't go to war with Russia over Ukraine, then you'll have a guy in Ukraine who's the president is going to be like Yanukovych, who was uh, there before uh, Petro Poroshenko. That's a reality. But they have to say, Putin's going to take over first Eastern Europe, then Western Europe, then South America, and then he will have conquered America successfully, as he's been planning to do uh, the, for the last uh, however many years. They have to engage in this type of deception in order to... Uh, get people to be willing to send their sons to die in unjust causes. The brief anti-war case made by Brian Kaplan in an excellent book, 
how evil are politicians? So the bumper sticker version is, the immediate costs of war are clearly awful. The long-run benefits of war are highly uncertain. So this is not like, well, if someone says they're going to murder you and they walk up to you with a gun, is it okay to defend yourself? This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with using civilians as cannon fodder when politicians are in a dispute over who gets to control which uh, geographical areas. So, uh, to reiterate, the state is the health of war because they have unique access to a central bank. This makes wars much more likely to occur when they can print their money. They don't have to get it through voluntary funding or anything like that. Uh, when they don't want to print because they don't want to devalue the money too much, they can take money by force. No one else in the country has a recognized right to do this. You'd be considered a thief if you tried doing it on your own or any other organization did it. They can conscript people. They control the minds of the masses through compulsory education and things like truancy laws. And there's a legal dub double standard that allows them to commit mass murder under the guise of foreign policy. This uh, is summarized by Hans Hoppe, a uh, PhD in economics from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in a book titled Economy, Society, and History. Uh, this, uh, The State is the Health of War thesis. He says, first... We should recognize that institutions, such as states, show a natural aggressiveness. The explanation is very simple. If you have to fund your own aggressive ventures yourself, out of your own pocket, that will somewhat curtail your natural inclination to fight other people, because you have to pay for it yourself. On the other hand, if you imagine that if I want to fight some of you guys, and I can tax him or I can tax him, and ask them to support me in fighting endeavors then whatever my initial aggressive impulses might be are certainly stimulated because I can externalize the cost of war on to other people. I don't have to bear the cost myself. Other people have to bear the cost. This explains why institutions that have the power to tax and also institutions that have the power to print money in later ages have financial abilities to make it more likely that they go to war. Then you would go to war if the power to tax was lacking or the power to print money was lacking on your part. So what can we do? We have this general thesis that uh, there's certainly a great deal of evidence for. I think the answer of uh, what the freedom fighters in this age can do is to learn a lesson from Kaiser Wilhelm in his book, The uh, Kaiser's Memoirs. He says towards the end of it that I cannot bring myself to dismiss this propaganda by branding it with such catchwords as a piece of rascality, etc., since it constitutes an achievement which, in spite of its repugnant nature, cannot be ignored. It did us more harm than the arms in the hands of our opponents. The English were more than our match with that terrible weapon of theirs, the tank, against which we could bring nothing of equal efficiency. So also were they superior to us with their very effective weapon, of propaganda. The unjust peace of Versailles could not have been founded upon Germany's war guilt unless the propaganda had previously accomplished its task, and partly with the support of German pacifists, instilled into the brains of a hundred million human beings the belief in Germany's war guilt, so that the unjust peace of Versailles seemed to so many justified. So, the power of propaganda is absolutely vital. What I think we should do is uh, find our greatest communicators, our greatest propagandists, to uh, promote the anti-war message, 
and the uh, there is a, one person in particular I want to look at. Um, here is an article published by The Independent, a woman named Skylar Baker-Jordanson. She says, I went to a right-wing libertarian conference as a socialist. I was pleasantly surprised by what I found. What I found was not a fascist rally or a bunch of jumped-up trolls ready to harass a reporter. Instead, I found hundreds of thoughtful young Americans who, though we disagreed on some fundamental issues, were interested in exchanging ideas about how to make our country stronger and our people freer and more prosperous. To put it simply, if CPAC showed the country a far-right that should terrify us all, irrespective of party, YAL, Young Americans for Liberty, showed the left a right we can work with. We are libertarians because we love liberty and we hate injustice, comedian Dave Smith said in remarks on the opening night. The reason we are libertarians is because governments destroy innocent people's lives and we hate that. Smith went on to speak against the Patriot Act and imperialist wars such as Iraq and Afghanistan and in favor of civil liberties, the exact three issues which motivated me to get involved in left-leaning politics in the early 2000s. Dave Smith, the comedian who headlined night one of the conference, pointed out that it was progressives like me who opposed the Bush-era wars and the Patriot Act. I found myself dismayed when liberals on Twitter demanded January 6 insurrection suspects be added to the no-fly list. I'm old enough to remember when the left opposed the no-fly list, and I still do. Indeed, my principles have not changed much since 2002. American politics, however, has. Dave Smith has fortunately appeared on places like the Joe Rogan Experience. He's been on the Jimmy Dore Show, the Tim Pool Show. He's been on Megyn Kelly's show. He's been on Kennedy's show. He is an excellent communicator. And this is someone that we can certainly learn a great deal from when it comes to changing the culture and changing how uh, people see the world in general. We get someone who's confident, can make the message very clear. He's got millions of views. This is on Joe Rogan's YouTube alone. Most of his views are on Spotify. The topics they discuss on Joe Rogan's show, you can see on the screen. Uh, Dave Smith breaks down the reason... Russia invaded Ukraine. Dave Smith explains the war in Yemen. Dave Smith passionately opposes vaccine passports. The military-industrial complex and CNN being exposed. So, by using what people like Dave Smith have shown us, he is certainly a guy we can uh, continue to support, and hopefully we can emulate, as Murray Rothbard said, to use the phrases of the new left of the late 1960s, the ruling elite must be demystified, delegitimated and de-sanctified. It's people like Dave Smith who are leading the charge, and I hope we can uh, continue to uh, support his efforts and uh, the efforts of all the other people uh, making the anti-war case in America. Thank you for watching, Keith. I don't tread on anyone and the Libertarian Institute.